0: The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Thursday, April 14th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Peska. The Moskva is burning. The Russian warship was hit by Ukrainian missiles and went away. You might say it went
1: the fuck away, but the BBC wouldn't. The Moscow gained notoriety early in the war when Ukrainian troops defending an island refused its demand for their surrender, using abrupt language
0: that quickly became a meme. Are you kidding me? The Ukrainians are at war. War is hell. Or, I guess according to broadcasters, heck, one presenter on the BBC presented it this way.
1: At the start of the invasion, its
0: crew was told bluntly to go away. Oh, sod off with go away, and you know, by sod off, which one I mean, you know, but the BBC had yet another crack at it. ...which is invasion, when a small contingent of Ukrainian troops defending an island used colourful language to d- reject its demand to surrender, and that prompted a flurry of internet memes. Hmm, I guess the BBC wouldn't dare. American broadcasters wouldn't, but we have the FCC. The government would fine us. The BBC isn't exactly the government, but they operate with standards, but not legally enforced standards. Except for this, they did dare it. I was listening this morning at about 8.30 my time, which would be 12.30 GMT. I heard a BBC announcer saying that this was the ship to which Ukrainians in the beginning of the war said, fuck off, he said it, he said it like that. And then the tape of the BBC announcer saying that has been disappeared. But, and importantly, so has the Moskva. To the briny depths, it sinks. The Ukrainian military really showing remarkable capabilities and the Russian warship did indeed fuck off abruptly because of a rocket's rude glare. Lots of the coverage are saying what this means militarily is that the Russian Navy will have to pull back further into the sea, and this will degrade their abilities to attack the Ukrainians. But that's already happened. The Ukrainians have hit ships before. What it really is, is another punch in the nose toward the Russian bullies, those, I shall say it, those fuckers, on the show today. and keep it British by focusing on Boris Johnson's travails and travels. But first, TJ Raphael is back to talk more about her podcast, Biohacked Family Secrets. So many descendants of sperm donors are finding out just that, just that status. The system was set up to protect the privacy of everyone but the children. Now there are legal issues and advocacy groups making demands that not everyone who has discovered theretofore unknown parentage agrees with. TJ Raphael, up next. In the late 70s, a brotherhood of criminals lived by one unbreakable rule.
1: Yeah, don't snitch. Those who did ended up in the ground. He had dirt under his fingernails, like he had tried to dig his way out.
0: And when their own kids turned on them...
1: They would do anything, and they didn't care who they had to kill.
0: The Killing Month, August 1978, is the new podcast from WRAL. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. T.J. Raphael is host of the most popular science podcast in America, Biohacked, family secrets. And the family secrets involved often stem from a 23andMe or other kind of paternity test that show that the father of the person taking the test isn't really their father. It usually is the father, not the mother, who gets found out or revealed to be someone different. There are Millions of people have been through this, and therefore there are millions of stories, but often the people who've taken the tests feel violated, and as you'll hear in this interview, sometimes they're organizing. But I began by asking TJ about a thought, a concept that kept occurring to me as I listened to the series, privacy. I just kept thinking that there is something to be said for privacy for the sperm donors. Not secrecy, but privacy. And does TJ delve into that at all? Is there any good argument for privacy other than, you know, it makes – it it is in the interests of people who have a financial stake? I don't know, my – My intuition keeps telling me, well, there seems to be some legitimacy, not to secrecy, but in general to privacy. Do you delve into the depths of that?
1: Yeah, so uh, we a hundred percent do. One of our upcoming episodes that's going to be released on April twentieth, actually, is uh, the entire thing is focused on um, an anonymous sperm donor who wants to remain anonymous and his struggle to maintain his privacy in the face of his donor offspring contacting his family members, you know, being able to find his photo. And Cause he was
0: told one thing: he donated yeah. under one set of rules.
1: Yeah, and he yeah. was—he's told me he, you know, started donating at nineteen. He was still a virgin, and. <laughs> (laughs) He was like, I was told in 1990. I would forever remain anonymous. I would never have done this if I would have been able to be found. It's a really complicated story because his mother really she, she says she loves the donor offspring and she wants a relationship so it's created kind she of always wanted a grandchild. Yeah, literally. Oh, yeah, yeah. he yeah. he doesn't have any grandchildren and she always wanted one. So it's uh-huh. created a lot of uh, you know difficulty for him and balancing his relationship with his family versus See that's maintaining his you,
0: privacy. You, I I should I should let listeners know that you do track down or Caitlin and Amber do track down their dad and he's on the show and he's a great character. But it kind of does let us off the hook about that issue because he said, yes, I was always told privacy and I was a little reluctant, but then he embraced it. And so that makes us all feel good about the experience. But he didn't have to. It was under no um, legal obligation to or I think no moral obligation to. So this new episode you're describing seems wonderfully complex.
1: Yeah. Oh, God, it it really it's one of I mean, I love all my children equally. So, but I, I don't want to say it's my favorite episode, but it's one of my my top ones because it it does show the real complexities. And I really, you know, the the name of the donor is is Mike, and I really feel for Mike, like he's like. I don't want anything to do with these people. I didn't even do a 23andMe test. My mom did. And like, I don't want to talk to them. And now they're forming this relationship with my mother who always wanted grandchildren. And he's like, my mom doesn't realize that I did this three times a week for three years. Like there could be dozens or hundreds of them out there. And I also interviewed his mother and she's like, oh, I didn't realize that. She's in her seventies now. And it, he he is really struggling to maintain his privacy. He said to his donor offspring like, like, you know, do I have to send you a cease and desist like you're posting my photo online? Like, so it is a very complicated issue. And we give a lot of time and space to his story because, yeah, I, I, I've i been very cognizant that like, yes, I know Amber, but I definitely don't want to see him. You know, one sided and all this. And we do have other episodes too with, uh, you know, a couple who recently used a sperm donor to conceive their three children and how great that's been for them. Um, we also have an entire episode featuring voices from the industry, like Sean Tipton, who I mentioned earlier, and also like clinic workers um, who are currently in the medical practice and, and doctors who kind of push back against all of these arguments. Um, so, you know, the narrative is really unfolding where it's like, okay, here's the one side, but then I'm going to flip everything you thought that you knew and uh, hopefully keep surprising you.
0: Yeah, because, um, you know, to once again quote Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park, <laughs> I, think, I think the idea of just because we could, we didn't stop to ask if we should, might also apply to these donor-conceived people, or at least the most uh, energetic among them. And as I'm looking at some of their materials, uh, Amber comes across as very sympathetic as portrayed, but as I'm looking at some of their materials, I'm wondering... Mm, what they're arguing with, say they sell a mug that says "siblings belong together." So, what is the idea, or what is the idea, what is the argument behind that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the "We Are Donor Conceived" group contains multitudes, as does any group. Um, I think you know the most extreme, but not if
0: they all have the same dad. Similar. <laughs>
1: um, you know, I think I think some of them feel like, yeah, like we. Some of them feel like there should be a limit of 10 children so that everybody can have the opportunity to know each other and like that they consider half siblings to be, you know, their siblings, even, you know, whether or not they share f- all of their DNA, they share half of it and that they should know each other and be able to connect with each other and. Um, like, you know, one of Amber's half-siblings that she found through 23 and Me, she exchanged a couple messages with the group and then was like, bye, I'm out. Like, doesn't <laughs> talk with any of them, doesn't really have a very big interest. Um, you know, the episode that is going to be coming out on April 6th uh, with a donor-conceived person, she- uh, she also has no interest in seeking out her biological father. She says, you know, if if by accident, like, we came into contact, okay, but I have no interest in knowing this person. Um, and also she's n- never really tried to seek out half-siblings. So I think it really depends on a lot of different things. But that person also found out when she was six years old versus when she was 30. So I think it depends on a lot of things as, as to why. And to your point, though, um, about, like, m- should you know there there are unintended risks, which we do go over uh, of increased legislation, which we do go over later in the season. Um Renee Almeling, who's a professor at Yale University, I, I interviewed her. She's a book called Sex Sells, uh, C E L L S. Um ah, yes. <laughs> and uh um, <laughs> Wait, is the
0: S with an, with a dollar sign? <laughs> that would be too much. No,
1: that, that <laughs> would be too much. It's a no dollar sign. But <laughs> you know, she gives this example of France where um I think it was back in the eighties, France France established a national domain bank. So for sperm and egg donors, were, it was run by the government, um, you know, in terms of records, you know, there was lots of transparency, the ability to find a donor, et cetera. But what wound up happening is queer p- families and single women were excluded from being able to access the bank. And that didn't change until fairly recently, actually. So just because there are new laws introduced doesn't always mean it benefits people equally um, or, you know, can't have unintended consequences in that sense. And that's something, you know, we do explore, too, like the downsides of all of this.
0: The thing about the 10 um, donations, uh, let's say, the 10 children rule, some of it seems impractical because, you know, someone will, a sp- a sp- we say donor, a sperm donor, a paid donor might give 100 donations. That doesn't mean he's going to have 100 or even 10 children. So you don't quite know. I guess there could be a mechanism. And in these countries, there is a mechanism to stop trying to fertilize with a single donor once his donations have reached 10. But that also doesn't seem ideal. Like, a you know, family could have three families at once could have decided this will be our sperm donor. And then one uh, fertilizes. And so they're the 10th. And then they have to tell the other two, sorry, you're over the max. I don't know. It doesn't like I said, it doesn't seem ideal. And the other thing about it from the perspective of the people who are donor conceived they, I would imagine that Amber, Caitlin, th- well, not Caitlin, I would imagine that the donor conceived people would say, well, I want a maximum of 10. So I, I only have nine other half siblings. They see themselves as among the 10, but what it would just, it would just, it would be as likely or more likely that they would not be among the 10. Maybe there wouldn't be enough donations to even have as many children as to mean that they'd exist in this world, right? Isn't that
1: a, isn't that a downside? It is incredibly complicated in places like Australia. Like we um, did, an ep- we're, it, we're integrating some voices from Australia where these laws were passed like in 2008 that limit the number of children uh, that a donor can, can produce to 10. Where, yeah, then families like essentially are like, well, now I have to wait six more months to find a different donor. And I mean, especially for women, you know, if you're fertility is rapidly declining, waiting six months or a year could really mean the difference between having a child and at all and not. Um, So we, we do explore in the series later on, like, what the unintended consequences might be of new legislation. For me, I'm like, you need to set up what the arguments are before you can poke holes in all of them. Um, You know, so we do go into that later on, but yeah. And I think, you know, a clinic worker that I spoke to for one episode, she said the same thing. Like if there's, you know, two families and they want to have three kids and that donor has already had, you know, three kids with, you know, a different family, then these people are kind of out of luck here. And, it can really impact how they structure their family or they will have to say, well, I guess our, our kids will be half siblings instead of full siblings. Um, so, yeah, it, it seems like whether there's new legislation, it doesn't necessarily mean it will benefit everyone. Um, there are going to be downsides. <laughs> um, and so what is and that is why in the first episode, I tried to kind of leave a breadcrumb at the end. I say, you know, do we need new rules? And if so, who gets to make them? Because, you know, there could be so many unintended ripple effects here that we, again, are not going to foresee.
0: Right. That's where the analogy with the adoptees breaks down, because the adoptees are in a similar position in terms of disclosure and knowledge, but not a similar position in terms of. You know, once you're adopted, or once you, your parents decide to adopt you, it doesn't really have any uh, impact legally on if the possibility of other siblings people in adopting. your life. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, or other people being able to adopt. Yeah, yeah, or
0: your natural parents have can have as many kids as they want. You know, in mm-hmm. America, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. So. I do think, though, that everyone, the most sympathetic argument is I need to know the medical information of my family. And there is some medical information that's mandated that the sperm donors, we're going to use this word, have to list it. But as you say, sometimes with young sperm donors, there are a lot of ailments or just situations that don't present themselves in, into, uh, until later in life. So that, I think is there's no real great argument against having maximum medical disclosure. Um, Other than that, though, I think everything is a little bit of a thorny area.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I agree that it's a completely thorny area. Um, I also think that culturally, you know, one of the, the things that we're going to explore later in the season, too, is now that, conversations around infertility are more public, people are more public with the use of using a donor in general, like, do we need laws like that, like, you know, will ban anonymity? Now that we have DNA kits, like, has the problem essentially solved itself, and are we, you know, is, is the position that donor-conceive activists are taking, is it sort of, now beating a dead horse? Like, maybe right. it would have been Who helpful. donates now
0: without knowing that they could be found out quite easily? Right, exactly. Yeah. You yeah. know,
1: in clinics, um, you know, I have a friend, actually, who in 2019 signed up to be a sperm donor, And then he wound up, you know, uh, pulling out, but um, because he, (laughs) (laughs) because he did not want to be found, and he he was told by the clinic in 2019. There's a very good chance that at some point your donor offspring could find you and you need to be aware of that. And um, he said, OK, yeah, I'm not going to go ahead and do this. So, you know, the realities around donors potential to be found clinics are acknowledging that, um, you know, as it relates to health records. I was texting with a reproductive endocrinologist the other day trying to convince her to come on and. Um, which we're still working on. But as it relates to medical records, she said, you know, donors are supposed to update their medical records every 10 years. And then she said, but of course not all do. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) that's the problem. Not all of them do. And if a clinic shuts down, like Amber's clinic, for example, there's no place for a donor to be able to go update their medical records. Um, So uh, some people advocate for essentially national donor registries like we have with uh, kidney donors. There's a national kidney donor registry. You can track, uh, you know, especially as it, for for egg donors, track uh, to see how they fare over time because egg donors take huge amounts of hormones in order to have eggs to donate. Um, you can see if somebody has donated, you know, you would be able to see how many times a donor has donated. And I think, you know, for parents, like, you know, if a parent knows that your child might have 200 siblings in the same geographic geographic area, a parent having that information, that empowers them to decide whether or not they want that donor. Because some parents might say, yeah, no, I don't really want my kid having this many siblings in one area. Um, So, you know, I think there's that. Um, And I think, you know, the industry communicating to especially sperm donors, like, you know, you might wind up having 200 children out there like Kurt, for example, he was never told how many pregnancies resulted from his donation. He's Kurt, just using Kurt his is ad- Amber's
0: biological father. Cor- correct. Yeah. yeah. So
1: he was just using his own estimates. Um, so the number could be lower. It could be much higher. But I think the psychological impact for a donor should also be considered here because. I mean, I would be horrified to find out that I had 200 children out there that I don't know. Yeah, both. Um, I mean, and for
0: a, well, yes, for a donor, yes. For a person, if you find out, oh, I have a couple of half-siblings, it could be delightful. If you find out I have a couple of hundred half-siblings, you start to feel like an experiment or something more akin to agriculture than humanity and factory farming. not. Not you know bespoke, uh, individualistic farming. Yeah, I could I could see all that.
1: Yeah, so yeah, that's why this whole issue complicated, And then I think also for me, like I, you know, which I raised later in the season, I get nervous about any kind of legislation in the United States as it relates to who can reproduce and who can't. I mean, the United States, you know, right now with the Supreme Court, we're currently awaiting decisions as it relates to access to abortion. Um, what's to say that, you know, in terms of donor conception, it doesn't wind up going even farther. There's a there's a real fear of a That's slippery slope. That's really interesting. Slope. Yeah. yeah
0: like I'm a sperm donor I want to donate 100 times I'm a woman I want to get this guy's 99th donation that kind of violates my body my choice right
1: Mhm exactly yeah, If you say you can't do that Yeah and like laws about who can and cannot reproduce have historically disadvantaged people of color queer people people with disabilities I you know I think in in, our, in episode four, we go into a lot of the eugenics of the past and how there were forced sterilization campaigns, et cetera. So there is precedent in US history for this. And, and so, yeah, in terms of what you were saying about Jeff Goldblum, maybe the donor conceived activists should also be thinking like, well, if we do this, like what could be the ripple effect down the line? And I think lawmakers need to, you know, as donor conceived activists, they're working with lawmakers in New York state, in New Jersey, in Colorado, and I know in Illinois, and they're um, pursuing this FDA lawsuit at the federal level. I think there needs to be consideration of, you know, is this going to be a precedent that potentially will have huge ramifications down the line?
0: T.J. Raphael is the host and the reporter of just the number one science show in the country. That's a subjective judgment. But also, if you look at those Apple charts, it's true. (laughs) It's called Biohacked Family Secrets from three uncanny four studios. TJ, great talking to you.
1: Thanks, Mike.
0: And now the spiel, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, has broken the rules and broken the law. Well, some rules are made to be broken, just generally not the ones that you yourself make, which is what happened. And it's not just Johnson who was fired for his transgressions of going to parties during lockdown, but also the UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, who failed to excheck himself before he ex-wrecked himself. The BBC's Barry Gibbon has more. The police say they broke the Covid laws they brought in. Both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor received fixed penalty notices. For Boris Johnson, more could be on the way. Both men told the Commons they had not broken the rules. They did deny it. Let's go to the audio tape. First Johnson. All guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. And now Sunak. I did not attend any parties. But the police have found otherwise the two most senior members of the UK administration and incidentally neighbors have apologized, paid their fines and asked the British public for forgiveness as they seek to move on from party gate. Predictably, the opposition Labour Party doesn't like it, but there's only one party that matters, and it's not the one with suitcases full of alcohol during lockdown, it's the Tory or Conservative Party, and those folks are behind Boris. And really, why wouldn't they be? The British public understands and, to a great extent, accommodates itself to the man's, shall we say, quirks, antics, failings, carelessness, dashed-off foppery casual heedlessness, self-satisfaction, solipsism, wait this is really turning into a terrible campaign commercial. There's also the issue of, well, if they sack Boris, who's gonna be the next PM. And up until a few weeks ago, the top candidate was Rishi Sunak. But now, in addition to the party attendance, it was revealed that his wife has not been paying taxes, which is legal. His wife has non-domiciled status. She is a nomdom. That's what they call it. And it's a scandal because, well, I don't think it's a scandal, but they say it's a scandal. Being a nom-dom, it's a legal provision of British law where a wealthy person like Akshata Murti, heiress to an Indian tech fortune, can claim she doesn't live in the UK, even though she owns a few houses there and resides in the aforementioned 11 Downing Street. The coverage seems to come down to, it's a bad look. And even though Murti is entitled to the tax breaks, she doesn't have to take them. The BBC quoted Professor of Accounting Richard Murphy. His wife is saving tax. I'm not even saying she's avoiding tax. She's simply saving tax by using this legal option that is available to her, but which she doesn't have to exercise. And that is the big question here. That seems like a small, big question not taking deductions you're entitled to, the argument there goes something like, Murti's a nom-dom, but that doesn't mean the public has to be submissive. However, if anyone from the Labour Party criticizes Murti or Sunak on these grounds, well, they themselves open up to the charge, hey, you once took a deduction. Still, you can expect the British tabloids to generate headlines, here's a few for free, nom-dom, time bomb, facepalm. Exchequered checkered past, or in the pro-Tory tabloids, Murty stays dirty through nom-dom drama. There's also a, uh, let's call it a subfuffle, not even rising to the status of a kerfuffle, about Sunak having a U.S. green card. The allegation not being that Sunak avoided British taxes, but, well, here's the allegation. Although got no tax breaks, he may have continued to pay taxes to the U.S. government while in office here. The guy's a patriot. Just to this country, not his. Still, Sunak's star has dimmed, and Johnson's chance of survival seems a lot better than the Moskva's. Part of the reason why he's up in the polls is that he showed up in Kyiv last week and strolled around next to Vladimir Zelensky. The Ukrainian prime minister did not wear a bulletproof vest while Johnson donned Zelensky as his armor. And it worked. The statesmanship boosted Boris in public opinion, and once... A few weeks ago, what seemed like a tough spot to wriggle out of, now seems like just another of old Boris's party tricks. I'm reminded of a story another politician liked to tell. That politician was Mario Cuomo. So there was a king, and this king imposed the death penalty on a prisoner. And the prisoner said, no, your majesty, you can't do that. If you give me six weeks, I can teach your horse to fly. Wait, you can? Yes, but I need six weeks to do it. And the king agreed, but then said, if it didn't work, I'm going to put you to death. So his fellow prisoners asked this guy, wait a minute, how can you deliver on that promise? How can you teach a horse to fly? And the prisoner said, I know that, and you know that. But who knows? In six weeks, I might die anyway. In six weeks, the king might die. In six weeks, the horse might die. And who knows? In six weeks, that horse might just learn how to fly. And I think you all sense the moral of that story. It's that the horse did indeed learn to fly established residence in India and never had to pay taxes again. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just Associate Producer. He's also established residency in an Alaskan indoor sports complex. It's the Nom Dom Nom Dome. Joel Patterson, Just Senior Producer, is funded by the non-domiciled community to blog about them under an assumed name. It's a nom-dom, nom-deplom spawn con. Michelle Pascoe runs a tight financial ship here at Peachfish Productions, but years ago, she lost money financing a meat-cute comedy about a non-domiciled resident who gets asked to the end-of-the-year dance. It failed at the box office, and Variety said: nom-dom, prom, rom-com, bomb. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast, who might be regretting that collaboration now. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist, um umpru de peru, peru, and thanks for listening.